I'm going to do something a little different today. Um, has, have you guys ever seen a photo mosaic? Have you seen that? Well, I have a picture of one. Is it up? Okay, who's that a picture of? Louis Armstrong, no one better, right? But what is it made up of? Right, here's the next slide. So if you zoom in, the big picture is made up of all these little pictures of Louis Armstrong, right? Really cool. There's a guy, I think his name is Robert Silver, who says he invented this thing, but he's got tons of really cool, this is probably my favorite one though. Um, And really you can look at the whole Bible this way, but I just want to look at Luke this way. So Luke, there's a big picture of Jesus that comes out of Luke, and that's what we're going to look at tonight, but the big picture of Luke is made up of all these portraits of Jesus, and what they do is each portrait is supposed to give you a little bit more clarity, a little bit more understanding of our Savior. So that's what Luke has put before us, so we're going to jump in. All right, that's off, good, because you'll just stare at that the whole time, like what? All I remember is a picture of Louis Armstrong. So open up Luke chapter one. We're going to do the whole book tonight, the big picture, and then we'll jump into all the 24 little pictures. Luke 1, 1. In so much... As many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. A fascinating verse. Oh my goodness. How do we get the Bible? Read verse one. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke sets out to write a narrative, the story of Jesus, we call it the gospel. And he's writing it to this guy named Theophilus. Who's Theophilus? The man with Theophilus name in the Bible. (laughs) Other than that, we don't know who he is. (laughs) So cheesy. Conjecture says this. Luke is a physician. It is quite possible that Theophilus had a slave named Luke who had aptitude. And as they would do in that day, they would send that slave off to be taught medicine. And then when he was taught medicine, he would come back to that family and be the family physician. Live with them, help them. That's what a lot of people believe happened with Luke. So Theophilus could be his owner, gets saved, and then says, hey, there's this guy, Paul, that I really like, 
and he's always getting a snot kicked out of him. He needs a doctor. Go hang out with him. So as you read the book of Acts, that's what you see happen. In about chapter 16, it goes from they, the pronouns, to we, where it appears Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, shows up, becomes Paul's personal physician. And what Luke tells us in these verses is this, hey, I check things out for you. So he's educated, he's a scholar, he's a scientist. It says he paid close attention. I think he was a skeptic. So he's interviewing witnesses and like, so where were you at April 6th, AD 32? Oh. Or was it AD 33? Which one was it, right? Just trying to catch them in a mistake. He's, he is a historian of great accuracy. So he sets out to make this orderly attempt at the narrative of Jesus. As a skeptic, I think. I love it when skeptics study the life of Christ and then they're like, hmm, this is true. Who here knows of Anne Rice? Remember her if you're a little bit older? She came before Twilight and all the vampire movies today. She wrote a book called Interview with a Vampire that became a movie, bestseller, just a massive mega hit. Tom Cruise starred in it. Uh, so she's big. She's an atheist, unbeliever. She decides with her time that she is going to write a story about Jesus, kind of like Luke, but maybe a little different. And her premise was this. She believed Jesus traveled down to Egypt, learned the dark arts, traveled back up to Israel, and then dazzled everybody with the dark arts that he had learned. So that was the premise for her now writing this book. Probably not gonna be a Beth Moore studies that women's come to church, right? Not that genre. So she begins to study. Halfway through her research, she converts to Christianity. So there's this great Wall Street Journal interview with her where they're like, what in the world? Atheists don't believe in Jesus. They just, that doesn't match. What happened to you? In her interview, she said this. She said, as I began to look into the narrative that I'd been told in college and in my atheist circles, that Jesus somehow stumbled into Jerusalem and was slaughtered for no reason and then stayed in a tomb. She said, as I looked into that research, and I quote her, it was some of the worst scholarship I've ever read in my life. And so I had to investigate. And the more I investigated, the more the account of Jesus as divine son of God, resurrected, became clear. And at some point she said, I believed in Jesus. I love it when skeptics doubt. And when they really do the close work, because you will find, ah, Jesus is who we claim to be. The second thing I love about this is, this is a letter. Luke never set out to write the Bible. Do you know that? He set out because he loved Theophilus, whoever the guy is, he loved Theophilus so much, he's like, I have to write him a letter to strengthen his faith. And God said, that letter is so good, Luke, I'm gonna put it in the canon of scripture. I'm gonna keep that for all eternity. You're gonna be a best-selling author without ever trying, Luke. How cool is that? I love that. Has anyone ever read Brother Lawrence's book, Practicing the Presence of God? Same thing. Brother Lawrence was a monk who was a dishwasher in a monastery. 
And he had a friend who had questions about what does it mean to follow Jesus? So he just starts writing letters to this friend and they write them back and forth. This abbot father compiled those letters and turned them into a book, which has been a perennial bestseller for about 300 years. Amazing. If you've read it, it's like, ooh, that's interesting. My favorite quote from the book is, he says this, I have, I have had thoughts of God that are so delicious, I am ashamed to mention them. <laughs> I'm kind of ashamed to quote them because it makes me feel dirty. It's like, hmm. <laughs> but it's brilliant. He didn't set out to write. He just said, I have a friend who has a need. And I'm going to answer that. And God said, that's brilliant. We're going to make a book out of it. I love that. C.S. Lewis. You know why he wrote Narnia? Because he took in these kids. He didn't really like kids. He took in these kids because of World War II. They were being bombed in London. The Blitzkrieg was coming. 1,000, 1,500 bombs a night hitting London. So these kids came out to his estate, which was out in the country. And they were just thrashing his home, as children do. And one of these kids pointed at this wardrobe and said, what's behind that wardrobe? And that gave C.S. Lewis the idea to write him a book, which now we call today the Chronicles of Narnia. It's amazing to me what God will do if you'll give him your five loaves and your two fish. You might think it's just a letter. You might think it's no big deal. You might think, well, I'm just opening my home. And God says, watch me do a miracle with your five loaves and your two fish, right? So that's what happens with Luke. I'm just writing a letter. God said, no, you're actually writing the Bible. How brilliant is that? So we've got section one is this. It's from chapter one to chapter four, verse 12. And I just call this section rocket launch. It's the launch of his story. And so it begins with the birth of John the Baptist, which we'll talk about next week. And then it moves to the birth of Jesus, two cousins. And I want to look at one part of the birth of Jesus because it sets the tone for what Luke is going to do throughout the entire epistle or the entire gospel, I should say. So look at chapter two, verse 32. Jesus has been born. Chapter two, verse 22. Chapter 2, 22, and when the time came for their purification. I have one of those apps too. They're awesome. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. I know. Give it to me, I'll fix it. <laughs> oh, sorry. <clears throat> Had to. It's a softball just like hanging there. Chapter 2, verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem 
whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Here's really story number one of the life of Jesus. And this is Baby Dedication Sunday. On Baby Dedication Sunday, could you imagine this? I'm up here with a baby. Some old dude just jumps out of the front row, runs up, grabs the baby, holds him up to the sky and says, now I can die. (laughs) What would happen to that guy? He's going to be tasered, right? Right? This is like a nutty. You're like, huh, that's, that's crazy. But then... Verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So you've got Anna, this 84-year-old widow who night and day, she's praying, she's fasting, she's worshiping in the temple. Bring that forward, 2,000 years. Who is she? She's the and I use this term lovingly, crazy tambourine lady, right? She's waving flags. She's doing her thing. She's running around. And all of a sudden she sees Jesus and she's like, yes, there he is. I point that out, those two stories, because who else is in the temple? Priests, yep. Scribes, theologians. And what do they see? just a baby. They just see just a baby. It's the two, and I use this term lovingly, crazies that get it. The outcasts, the miscreants, the old, the the overlooked, they get it while the insiders don't. This is a very important point because this is what Luke centers on. He is always saying the outsider gets it when the insider misses it. The poor, the downcast, the good Samaritan, right? Who's held up as the hero in the good Samaritan? The Levite? The priest? No, the enemy, the Samaritans. He's the hero, right? The Pharisee and the tax collector, where the Pharisee comes in and he's beating his chest and I'm so good, look how good I am. I tithe, I fast, I do all this stuff and I'm so glad I'm not like that sinner over there. 
And the tax collector, who won't even lift his head up, beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, he went away justified, not the Pharisee. Pull those into modern day, it'd be a pastor and a terrorist, right? Because a tax collector worked for the enemy. He worked for Rome, took money from God's people and gave it to the enemy. He was a terrorist. It's always the outsider. They're the ones that see the kingdom while the insiders miss it. And you'll see this over and over in the book of Luke. Now, if that's true, I want to go outside then. Give me the tambourine and the flag. Start waving them, right? It's to move you from your tribalness to saying, actually, ministry happens very often outside my tribe. That's where God's spirit is moving miraculously. So I should head in that direction too, right? So that's that first section, blast off. The next section, chapter four, verse 14, all the way almost to the end of chapter nine is not just rocket launch. Now it's revealing the light. Once again, major emphasis of Luke is, guess who sees it? Okay, so chapter four, verse 16 Let me read this. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Guess what Jesus did? He went to church. Isn't that awesome? Who would you think would not need to go to church? Jesus. But guess what he did? He went to church. I love that. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Not Bible roulette. He finds it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you know the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61, Jesus cuts a sentence in half. Read the quote in the original. He leaves out the coming vengeance of God. It's fascinating. It's why I believe in what's called already, not yet when it comes to prophecy. So, total side note. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, 
do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. How fickle are people's allegiance, right? Back in verse 22, man, he's awesome. Down in verse 29, let's kill him. Jesus begins, hey, that's awesome, ends, they're angry, why? Because he pointed out to them, you guys think you're privileged because of your DNA. You think you're privileged because you're born of the seed of Abraham. And then he points out in the Old Testament two people that were not Israelites, who in times of really difficult issues, God helps the outsider again. And they get mad. They get mad and they want to kill him. It's Luke again saying, look at this isn't just a New Testament thing where God is a seeking God going outside of your own boundaries. It's always been that way. The Old Testament through the New Testament. So in chapter five, Jesus now calls his disciples. Who does he call? Does he go to Harvard Does he say, hey, send me your resumes. Let me check them out. Does he go to Princeton's Divinity School to choose those guys? No, where does he go? The local fish market, right? In this day, rabbis would be constantly looking for the top cream of the crop. And when they found a potential student at like 12 or 13, they would grab them up. And then 13, 14, they grabbed them up. 15, 16, they grabbed them up. By the time you're 18, if you had not been selected by a rabbi, guess what that meant? You're a dropout. Go get your GED and go fishing. So Jesus now goes to the wrong place. And for his disciples, guess who he chooses? The cast from the deadliest catch. That's who he chooses. I'm dead serious, man. Right? They're bad dudes. They're not the best guys. Judas will betray him. All of them will forsake him. When Jesus tells them that they're going to do that, Peter starts a fight with Jesus and says, no, I'm not, right? I mean, it's just nonstop. You read the, the gospels and the disciples are not put in a good light. They're the world's deadliest catch. That's who they are. This is supposed to give you and me great hope because there's very few of us that have graduated from Harvard or Princeton. Most of us fit into the confused, 
overlooked, marginalized, flunkies. That's where we fit. And Jesus says, perfect. Perfect. Ever feel like the last picked? That was like my whole middle school. Because I was tiny. In the eighth grade, I was mistaken for being a fifth grader by an adult. I went to the, the, when there was a skating rink, right? It was a middle school skating rink. I'm an eighth grader. And they're like, hey, you're not in the eighth grade. You're in the fifth grade. You can't come in. No, I am in the eighth grade. So I'd go down to West Home Park and we'd pick teams for flag football. And it'd always be, all right, you take the girl, we'll take Matt. I'm like, oh, really? (laughs) I get it. God loves those kind of people. Read 1 Corinthians 1. That's what that entire 1 Corinthians 1 is all about. God loves to use the marginalized, the outcast, the last pick, because he says, watch what I'll do with them. Watch what I'll do. I'll turn the world upside down with the last pick fishermen, the world's deadliest catch cast. That's what I'll do. It's brilliant, right? So that's blast off. Then section number three, starting in chapter nine, verse 51, is the resolution to die. It's 10 chapters. It's the biggest part. So look down chapter nine, verse 51. And this goes all the way to chapter 19, verse 27. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. From this point on, Jesus is now on a road trip to Jerusalem to die. It's the longest section. And when you read through this section, here's what you find. Over and over on this road trip to Jerusalem, Jesus is teaching. I call it redeeming the ride. I think we've lost that today. Because in the ride now, we've got DVD players and MP3 players and iPhones and iPods and game consoles, right? So we miss redeeming the ride. When I grew up with my two brothers and my sister, we had one thing we could do in the car, fight like rock stars, right? Here's the line, you can't cross that, right? That was, our, that was the entire ride. It was great. I honestly can remember conversations with my mom in the car. I remember one in particular when she was taking me to the airport to go to Alaska. It was almost a prophetic conversation I had with my mom. If I had a phone at that time, I would have missed that. Jesus redeems the ride. I tell youth guys all the time this, man, it's the ride. It's the ride that matters. You have a captive audience. They cannot get away from you. Tell them to put their phones down and have a conversation. Start asking them good questions. That's what Jesus does for 10 chapters. I'm redeeming this ride. I'm gonna ask you good, hard questions. You're gonna learn, we're gonna go. Redeem the ride. I'll give you some examples. So number one, he does this. He tells them, you guys have the wrong spirit. Look at verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. 
But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? (laughs) Do you think they could actually do that? Hey, we're going to do this. Great trick. But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. You have the wrong spirit. Jesus would say, I've come to save, not to destroy. I think one of the most important things to do when maybe we're being rejected or somebody's not listening to our message or whatever it might be, is to ask ourselves, what's my motive? What spirit am I of? If we honestly believe the gospel, then the most important decision a person can make is about their eternity. If that is the single most important decision a person can make, then should that shape the way I deal with every conversation? It should. And we should look a lot more like Jesus, not calling down fire upon people, but just knowing it's okay. I'll get another shot at him. And Jesus does. Right? Wrong spirit. Number two, wrong identity. Look at chapter 10, verse 17. Jesus sends out his disciples two by two. They go out, they heal, they do all this brilliant stuff. They come back. Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy. They are excited, they're stoked, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. These guys come back, they're stoked. Ever gone on a short-term missions trip? It's like that. They return from a short-term missions trip and they've just seen incredible, amazing things. And then Jesus is like this wet blanket on them, right? I saw Satan fall from heaven. Don't rejoice in that at all. Now, why? Wrong identity. Jesus is giving them one of the most important lessons you can ever learn in life. Don't get your identity from being a demon caster or from having a PhD or being a pastor of a church or being on staff or a worship leader or how much you know the Bible. Get your identity because you're a child of Jesus, that you're saved, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. It's called your gospel identity. You know why? Why does Jesus mention, I saw Satan fall from heaven? Why does he mention that? In this context, why did Satan fall? He wanted a name for himself. Isaiah 14, read it. I want to be like most high. I want to be respected. I want that. I want to be up with him. That caused his fall. One of the easiest ways to trip up in your faith is starting to derive your identity from something other than your name is written. In the Lamb's book of life, you have been adopted into the family of Jesus Christ. 
That is an identity that can never be taken from you and will never shake and will stand through every storm. So Jesus is serious right here. You got the wrong identity. Don't get that. When you have that right identity, I believe it's Ephesians 6 verse 14 that says this, you put on the breastplate of righteousness. That your righteousness, your standing before God is not based on how good of a pastor you are or a Bible teacher you are or if you have a PhD, it's not based on any of that. It's based on the work of Jesus and you become bulletproof. What does the breastplate protect? Your heart. You're not on an emotional roller coaster, up and down, up and down. You're solid. Jesus loves me. And his love for me is never gonna end. And he has adopted me and he'll never give up on me. He'll complete the good work he started in me. That's the identity to have. It's a wrong spirit, wrong identification, wrong rules, like at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to a test. Lawyers are good at that. Saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What do I do? Wrong rules, bro. If you know, Jesus now gives, asks him, hey, what do you think it is? Well, these commands, well, who's my neighbor? Gives the story of the good Samaritan where guy gets the snot kicked out of him, priest too busy, Levite too busy. Everyone's too busy for him except for the enemy, the good Samaritan who takes him, takes care of him, brings him down. And then Jesus asks him, who's the hero of the story? It's verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even say the word Samaritan. They disliked him so much, they wouldn't even utter the name. That's how much he disliked Samaritans. So they had these rules where certain people were excluded from God's family. One of those people, Samaritans. And Jesus says, uh-uh, this dude's included. This foreigner, this person that's different ethnicity than you, no, they're actually on the inside. I think it's so important for us, I said on Sunday, to cross borders that we think are there like Jesus did, because you realize something very quickly. We're all fallen humans and we all get saved the same way. And that is a huge thing to understand. I think sometimes we can so be so focused on our own little neighborhood that we forget the broader work of Jesus throughout the world. So I have this quote by Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook. And he said it like six years ago. And this is him studying what Facebook does. He said this, he said, a dead squirrel in your front yard will get way more attention than 5,000 people that die in Africa. I thought, that is crazy, that's social media. Why, because it's in my front yard. That's why I think it's so important to be broad, to go to other countries, to see, if you would, Samaritans and how their faith works out. I've been so privileged to do that. I've been five times to India and I've taught pastors conference over there with 300, 500 pastors. Every time I go, I learn more than I ever teach. I learn about passion and discipleship, prayer and fasting. People whose faith, man, puts mine to shame. I'm so glad to go there. I've been to Africa. 
a couple times. Can we learn something from Africans? We can learn rhythm. That'd be really good. Yes, you go to every single place. I, I learned care for people in Africa like I'd never seen before. There was an orphanage that took in children, babies that were born with AIDS. And the care and dedication of those people in that facility was like something I've never seen before. We need to be constantly saying, it's wider, it's wider, it's wider. That's what Jesus is trying to say to this guy. It's bigger, man. It's not just priests and Levites inside the temple. This thing is bigger. It's a robbed dude being helped by who you think is the enemy, right? Then wrong ambition. Last one. Verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Classic story of Mary and Martha. Or Mary her mind is distracted because she's trying to do too much. And because she's trying to do too much, she gets mad. And now relationships that should be good are in trouble. She's mad at Jesus, is she not? Right, she's mad at Jesus. She says, you don't care for me. Because if you did care for me, you would tell my sister to help me. You ever felt that way? Jesus, if you really cared for me, you would tell my wife to help me. You would tell my husband to help me. You would tell my boss to stop that. You would tell my neighbor to quit it if you really loved me. She was taken with much serving. What's interesting to me in this story is these two sisters, they have a brother. What's his name? Lazarus. What do we know about Lazarus and Jesus? They're homies, right? John chapter 11, Jesus wept. They were all together all the time. Jesus loved Lazarus. Where is Lazarus in this story? He's MIA, man. Now why? I think he heard, oh, Jesus is coming to my sister Martha's house. Oh, drama. Oh, dude, I'm busy. What are you doing? I don't know. Uh, reshoeing my camel. I don't care, man. Anything. I'm not going there. I know what that's going to be like. He's going to be manic. It says, with much serving. The truth is this. Mary had helped her, and Mary was done helping. We got it good enough. Let's relax now. But Martha could not relax. You know why Martha could not relax? Because it had to be the best party ever. She wanted all the neighbors to know, wow, that was amazing. I remember the time Jesus came to your house. That was the best party ever. You're so awesome. She got her identity from her parties. This has to be great. So she's running around. She's trying to be Martha Stewart. Eight course dinner. 
hors d'oeuvres, a glass of wine, or if you're Baptist, a glass of grape juice, right? Pots, cleaning, let open the door, cleans up, just, she's going crazy. So Jesus says, the real issue here is you're trying to find salvation in what you do rather than me. And it will drive you to manicness. There's one thing you need to do right now. It's relax. We should know that. How does our story begin? Genesis 1. God creates, right? Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. What does God create on day six? Animals and humans, right? Day six, he creates animals and humans. What's their next day? Sabbath. I do not think that's a coincidence. I think it's God saying, you're human beings, not human doings. The first order of business for you, Adam and Eve, is relax, relax. And until you get shalom, until you get rest right, you're not good at anything. So get rest right first, and then we'll get to gardening. I think it's divine. I think many of us need to learn how to rest first because you'll get a lot more done when you're a human being than trying to be a human doing. You just get manic like Mary. You don't enjoy life. So this is just chapter one of this. And there's nine more chapters. They're brilliant. Meditate on this section. The rich man and Lazarus, the wedding feast parables, the 10 lepers, the good Samaritan. It's amazing. Zacchaeus in the tree. Brilliant. The next section, super quick, is the rejection of Jesus. Chapter 19, verse 28 to chapter 23, verse 56. Let me read one quick thing on this. Jesus, chapter 19, comes into Jerusalem. He presents himself. Verse 38, they say this to Jesus when he's coming into Jerusalem. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They know what Jesus is doing. All right? Verse 41, and Jesus says, would that you even had known on this day the things that make for your peace. Skipping down, but because you did not know the time of your visitation, wrath is coming. Why is Jesus, after coming into Jerusalem, presenting himself as king, then he goes up and starts to bawl and say, oh, you should have known this was your day. Why does he say that? Remember Daniel chapter nine, the most incredible prophecy in the Bible, where Daniel predicts the day that Jesus will present himself to the nation as the king. If they'd been studying, if they'd been thinking, they would have known, hey, this is the day. It's coming to pass. And Jesus weeps because they missed it. And instead, there's coming wrath, right? Then chapter 24, I've got four minutes. (laughs) Resurrection and road to Emmaus, brilliant. I think one of the most important Little sections in the entire Bible is the road to Emmaus. Let me read this really quick. Look at verse 25 of chapter 24. Jesus, death, burial, resurrection. Two guys, two disciples are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. All of a sudden, this stranger shows up, starts walking with them. He's like, dude, why are you guys so bummed? And they're like, oh, didn't you hear? Jesus, who we thought was Messiah, has been killed. So this is Jesus' answer, verse 25. 
And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things down first and then enter into his glory up? And verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Guess what Jesus says about the Old Testament? It has one purpose. Its purpose is to point you to me. And so then Jesus says, I cannot wait to TiVo this in heaven. He just goes through the Bible and shows, look it, look it, look it. Life of Joseph, right? He has to descend first before he's elevated. Over and over, you see that pattern throughout the Bible, this dissension before this ascension. It's incredible if you start to study it. So Jesus just says, look, look. Isaiah 53, look. Look at all these texts. Look at all these passages. All right, so you guys know who Andy Stanley is? So Andy Stanley uh, is on the hot seat because he said that in a message a year ago, we need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. Now, there's a lot I like about Andy Stanley. I didn't like that. I think the Old Testament declares over and over with absolute clarity the whole thing that you need is Jesus. We'll try everything in the world, perfect law, good kings, whatever. It doesn't matter what you try. What you need is a savior. Like, we need, like the Old Testament is the thing that directs us to our desperate need for Jesus, and it also completely predicts what will happen to Jesus. It is brilliant. And when you understand this, here's what happens to the Old Testament. Before it can be academic and boring and, ah, uh, when you get verse 32, you know what, get verse 27, I mean, verse 32 happens to you. Look what they say. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So last week, I have a class, and the class was about Jacob and Joseph. And the entire class, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, was showing all these little things in the stories of Jacob and Joseph that point to Jesus. It was brilliant. It's unbelievable. The minutia, it's like that portrait I showed you. You can just look at the big picture. Oh, yeah, like Joseph and, yeah. But then even the little details are saying, look it, it's what you need about Jesus. It's unbelievable. My professor calls it Bible ninjas, that they're in there just making this thing. They don't even know that they're doing it, right? But it's happening in scripture brilliantly. When you understand it's about Jesus and you start to read the Old Testament and you see it that way, your heart burns in the best way possible. So my hope is as we go through Luke, our hearts burn for Jesus because that's what it's supposed to do. So Father, thank you for this overview of your son. I pray as we look closer and closer and closer at him, that our lives would look more and more like him, that we get the message of Luke, who is a Gentile outsider, saying, Jesus came after me, and he'll come after you too. 
that Jesus is always breaking down barriers to bring people into his kingdom. And may we do the same thing. So bless the book of Luke. May we have the capacity to understand it in its fullness, I pray. And I ask you these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.